For many of you, getting paid by your client is a multi-step and multi-app workflow that looks something like this. One, send the client a proposal or engagement letter via a signature tool and wait for your client to accept it. Two, add the client to the accounting system, generate an invoice, and send that to the client. Three, wait for the client to pay you. Or maybe you're more advanced and you send a separate PDF or form to collect their ACH or credit card info and set up automatic payments. But again, you have to wait for them to provide you with those details. You get the point. It's a manual and messy process with many uncertainties regarding your income. And I didn't even mention the spreadsheet you'll need to create to track all these steps. There's a better way to get paid and implement the subscription business model in your firm. Anchor can help. Stay tuned to hear more from our sponsor, Anchor, later in the episode. And the big thing about strategy is it's about what you don't do. A firm, mm, a, firm no. a CPA firm is defined by the customers it doesn't have and the services it doesn't provide. And too many firms try and be all things to all people. They want to be Morton's. They want to be McDonald's. Oh, and by the way, we have a vegan menu as well. And, you know, if, if you try and be all things to all people, you're nothing to nobody. If you'd like to earn CPE credit for listening to this episode, visit earmarkcpe.com. Download the app, take a short quiz, and get your CPE certificate. Continuing education has never been so easy. And now, on to the episode. Hello, and welcome to the Earmark Podcast. I'm your host, Blake Oliver, joined today by Ron Baker. Hi, Ron. Hey, Blake. How's it going? Great to see you. Great to talk to you. You too. I have been enjoying your book, Time's Up, the (laughs) subscription business model for professional firms. And that's what we're here to talk about today is the subscription business model and specifically how accounting and bookkeeping firms can benefit from this. I was an early adopter of the subscription model. I had fixed fees on a monthly recurring basis in my firm and it really changed my life. Uh, It enabled me to build a firm very quickly and sell it. So I've experienced it. Uh, I didn't really, though, have like a theory, a grand unified theory of what I was doing when I did it. I just sort of did it. Uh, But reading your book has like added a lot that I was missing. And I actually wish I could go back and and do it again now with this knowledge. (laughs) Yeah, so do uh, I, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And we should say that, you know, you're not just a a thinker and a writer. You are uh, a CPA, uh, or you were, and you started at KPMG, and you had a firm, and you had a long career serving clients. And so um, you've got this rich experience and background in in developing all this theory. So I guess that's a long-winded way of saying welcome to the show, and uh, I'm eager to talk to you about the subscription economy. Yeah, me too. Thrilled to be back. Let's let's start with like defining it. So when when you say subscription economy, what does that mean? Subscription economy was coined by Teen Zo, the founder and CEO of Zora, the software company that runs a platform for subscription-based businesses, and it's projected to be one and a half trillion dollars by 2025. The the uh, subscription economy in in aggregate, and that's from the USB Bank, I think, or USBC Bank uh, projections. And if you look at most of the unicorns out there, they're all subscription-based. And we're just seeing a tsunami out there of subscription-based businesses. A teen says in five years, you won't own anything. You'll subscribe to everything. Now, I, I, I don't believe that. I think in five years' time, you will have the option to subscribe to everything. And whether or not your firm does anything with this model, it's going to be confronted with it because your competitors are going to be offering it. So when I think subscription economy, I think, you know, uh, Netflix, I think Amazon Prime, I think actually of all the streaming services that I am required to be subscribed to as the parent of a kid <laughs> who, uh, you know, consumes a lot of media, Disney, Disney Plus is one of them, which I, 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 Disney, hey, that's a great service. Uh, they've got all the Star Wars stuff on there now. So it's really for the adults too. Uh, I think ESPN you can subscribe to. So what what does subscription look like? in an accounting firm. Let's say I've got a traditional firm where I'm billing by the hour, I'm billing after the fact. How is that different from what you're talking about? Right. If you, if you kind of look at the evolution of our business model in the profession is, we, you know, hourly billing is pricing based on inputs, right? We're charging for the inputs. How much effort did it take? How many hours? What, what kind of activity? 
when I entered the profession, we were kind of in this hybrid mode where we would give a fixed price, at least for the audit work, sometimes even the tax work, if it was bundled. And that was charging not for inputs, but for outputs. Here's a defined scope of work. Here's what we're going to do for the price that we're charging you. If something comes up that's outside of that defined scope, of course, we're going to have to go to the Department of Paperwork and get a change order and have it approved by six different levels and all of that. And then value pricing came along and we taught that, you know, you don't price the output, you price the customer because value is subjective. Every customer is different. They have their own value drivers, values contextual. So depending on what the customer is trying to do, so you price the customer. Subscription's different because you're pricing the portfolio and you're pricing the relationship, not the customer. And people say, well, that's semantics, Ron. What's the difference between pricing the customer and pricing the relationship? Actually, it's a huge difference. Uh, if you look at the way even value pricing has been implemented by firms, we're still pricing the outputs, Blake. And it's frustrating because that was never the intent. The intent was to price the customer and the transformation, but people didn't go that far with it. They're, so when you look at three options that firms give, it's all based on scope of work. Right. I think subscription can blow that up. And it's not based on the scope of work because the services are just a means to an end. That's not where our value lies as CPAs. We are so much more than the scope and sum of our services. And we don't provide more value by adding services, you know, piling them on brick by brick by brick by brick. Our real value comes from transformations. And that's what the subscription economy forces you and insists that you look at and design. What kind of transformations can you provide to your customer? Okay, so let's dig into that because that seems kind of vague. And when I think of pricing based on services, I'm thinking, okay, uh, you know, in my accounting services firm, my bookkeeping firm, we'd say, okay, we're going to do your bookkeeping write up on a monthly basis. And that's this price fixed fee. Okay. We're going to do your bill pay and your payroll and your bookkeeping. And that's all packaged into this price here. And maybe we add a tax return. Maybe we add a little bit of uh, advisory work. That's what you're talking about when you say we're pricing the, the scope of the services. Right. Okay. So how do we change that? Like, what would I be doing differently if I were pricing the relationship? Well, this is something each firm's going to have to design on their own because this is this is where strategy and positioning comes in. So, and that's not something that you plan. That's you know, strategy is designed. So it depends on what your goal is for your firm. Do you want a lifestyle firm? Do you want to scale it? All those different considerations. You can still have pricing tiers, but what I'm saying and my north star for our profession, because I think there's so many parallels between the medical profession and what we do are the direct primary care physicians and the concierge doctors, by the way, mm -hmm. I don't want to leave them out because they're the ones that charge the real premium prices. They're the Disney's of the medical profession, the concierge doctors. And what they do is they say, you subscribe to our practice and you're covered for anything that you need that we can do. There's your constraint that we can do. You're not going to go to a DPC and get oncology treatment for your cancer. You're not going to get cardiac surgery. You're not going to do all the things that they would refer you to a specialist to do. You're only going to get something that a GP can do. Now, so the, the goal is if you say to the customer, hey, whatever you need that we're capable of doing and that we do, that's in our wheelhouse, that's in our core competency, you're covered. You're Got covered. It. They get audited, you're covered. They get a notice from different states, they're covered, whatever it is. Now, I guess you well, could tier it and you could say for like a, a smaller firm that say did CAS and let's say they do tax and some advisory. Okay, you could say in the first tier, you're in the CAS tier, but that means we'll do anything that you need that's included in our CAS scope of work, you know, in our, in our scope you, of competencies. You're basically eliminating a lot of the scoping that had to happen oh, previously. It, it completely. And it blows I, up scope. And I love that because if you don't have scope, you can't have scope creep. Exactly. And it doesn't the, matter. It, yeah. we, we get all caught up in, oh, did we spend 10 hours on that or six hours? And oh, that means we, lo we lost money. That's such, we both know that's BS. It doesn't change the cash flow 
by one penny, whether or not an accountant spends 10 hours on something or five hours. That's not even the right way to look at it. The right way to look at it is take care of the customer, make it convenient, surface simplicity, give them peace of mind and give them absolute convenience because I promise you they're comparing you to Amazon Prime and Disney Plus and Hulu and Netflix and they're having their expectations raised because of that. And I think our customer experience has really suffered. I mean, you look at the average NPS score in the accounting profession, it's 23 Apple's is like, I don't know, 80-something. BMW, Porsche's in the 80s. We're at 23, Blake. Yeah. (laughs) What does that tell you? So when I say my North Star is the DPC, the direct primary care, I just want to emphasize that Amazon is making a major move in the space. They just bought one medical for $3.9 billion. I don't think it's gone through yet. I think it has to be approved. But they're going to pay around $3-something billion for it. This is the largest DPC practice in the United States. And they just bought it. And I just saw they have a website. You can sign up for one year, if you're a Prime member, for $144. $144? Yep. It's a special price for a special time period. Wow. I might need to sign up for this uh, because it's it's getting kind of challenging to book an appointment with my primary care physician. You, you know, know it, uh, uh, I'll give you an example. In October last year, I tried to get an eye appointment uh, with my doctor appointment with my eye surgeon because I needed a new pair of glasses and my subscription or prescription had expired. Yeah. And this is October 1st. He couldn't see me until January 29th. And I, I pitched, you know, I complained and she said, well, I can get you in December 29th. I said, great, I'll take it. I had to go yeah. to another doctor, get, you know, blah, blah, blah. I saw my doctor who I love by the way. And I said, doc, <laughs> Tried to get in here to five months. So you got too many patients. I said, either you give me a subscription plan where I can cut to the front of the line or you've become expendable in my life. You're, you're either indispensable to your customers or you're expendable. And he's yeah. become expendable. I love him, but if I can't get to him when I need him, what's the point? Yeah, that's the problem with fee for service. We see it Absolutely. in medical, which is the only way to make more money is to do more services. And so in the medical profession, you see doctors rushing you in and out of the office so that they can get you done. And they're not developing a relationship with you. They're not spending time with you. And we really see that in accounting too. Firms that are doing a lot of volume, doing, say, tax returns, it's impossible to have a relationship when you've got thousands of returns you're doing or hundreds, you know, whatever it is, you you know, the principle is the same, right? You're just trying to get them done so you can bill for them. But in a subscription business... You can spend more time with each of your customers because you've priced in the cap- the capacity. Like, that's and, correct. And, and that's why I think one of the big objections to subscriptions is, well, you know, how do I, if I'm not billing hourly, how do I make sure that my team doesn't get completely overwhelmed? How do I deal with the capacity problem? Because I might sign somebody up and then they're going to ask me for the world and I didn't price it in there and I didn't, you know, like how do I protect my team? <laughs> They can't ask you for the world because they can only ask you for things that you're competent to do. And if you're focused on transformations, you can only usually guide maybe one or two transformations in a year anyway. I mean, because otherwise you'd overwhelm the customer. They don't have the bandwidth for that either. I'm, I'm just not worried about that. I worry more about the customer needing things and going somewhere else than I do about them overloading the team. You know, what mm-hmm. if they go to some other consulting firm? I mean, how many times do we see consulting expense on the income statement? You know, and it's, it's usually alphabetical, right? So you see accounting and you go, okay, that comes to us. And then you see this consulting expense that's five times what they pay you. And you right. say, what's this? Oh, well, we hired so-and-so to do such and such. And we sit there and say, oh, well, we do that. <laughs> oh, you guys do that? Well, whose fault is that? So I, I think it's backwards to worry about the, the capacity constraint. Plus, the other thing is you're limiting the number of customers that you intake. For example, the average primary or the average primary care physician in the United States has a panel of patients of 2,400, and that's why you get to spend five minutes with them because they've got to see 50 or 60 patients a day. That that because they're in that fee for service treadmill. And I would argue, and I'll die on this hill, we are on the same fee for service treadmill. I don't care if you're hourly billing. I don't care if you're value pricing. You are on a fee for service treadmill. We get paid for 
what we do to the customer rather than what we do for them. Mm -hmm. Because it's all based on services. Do your tax return. Oh, you added uh, 10 employees? Well, then the scope changes and we have to go to the Department of Paperwork. I mean, we've just, we've created a bureaucracy to some extent with value pricing that subscription just overcomes because it just says, look, if you need it and we can do it, you're covered. We're going to get it done. And if we can't do it, we've got specialists in our social capital network that we'll get you to. And we'll quarterback the relationship, but it's all about the relationship. So the average patient or the average doc in the United States has 2,400 patients. The average DPC physician has 600. Just, just to compare that, the average concierge doctor has between 50 and 100 patients. Now, so concierge the, the, doctors would charge you about 30 grand a year. Right. Yeah. My, my parents just signed up for a concierge doctor for a, one of these practices you describe. And they love it because they can get an appointment within days instead of weeks or months. And the office will not only take care of everything they need when they're there, but will book follow-up appointments, will make referrals to experts, will follow up on that, do all of the kind of administrative stuff that has been pushed onto patients, which I, I, I is, is a much better experience, right? So Totally. It's going to change the way we ha- we have healthcare delivered in this country, but how do with we, Amazon moving into it. But how do we reconcile that with the shortage of doctors and the shortage of accountants? Because what you're saying is to deliver this type of subscription, we've got to have a ratio that is four times smaller than it is now in terms of patients to doctors or accountants to uh, or clients to accountants. You know, how, how does that work? Not there just aren't enough of us to go around. And why is that, Blake? Why aren't there enough accountants? Yeah. Well, there's, uh, we can talk about that all day long. Yes, I mean, we can, but it's because yeah. we bill by the hour and we're in a fee-for-service treadmill and we're burning yeah. out people. We're eating our young. You talk about this every week on cloud accounting. You're eating our young because we put them yeah. in a fee-for-service model. GPs yeah. are in short supply too. They are. But yeah. I think the DPC and concierge models are what's going to bring more people into that practice. It would be the same for our profession. If I came out of college with a degree and I was offered to go into a big eight where I'm going to have to track every six minutes of my day like a prisoner, or I can go to even a small firm like a six-person, nine-person, ten-person firm, and I can do transformations. I can actually have client contact and not have and not be overwhelmed. Do you know one job after the other, after the other, after the other, and focus on efficiency and utilization and all that BS? What's going to be more attractive for our future? This is not just about a business model at the micro level. This is about at the macro level too. I think it's the only thing that's going to be able to attract talent into our profession. Yeah, that's true. We like to rag on the one hundred fifty hour rule on the cloud accounting uh, podcast. It, it, and, and I agree with you. That needs to go there. I don't right. know why we still have that, but that but, doesn't solve the problem. Once you get, you, once you get the CPA, you go into the, and this is the big four firms. You, you know, that's the grist mill. Yeah. That's where we're all taught for not everybody. And certainly more in my day than in yours. Okay. And I'll admit that. I mean, my goal was to get in a big eight. That's all. I, I didn't want to go to a regional. I wouldn't even have considered it, but you go into those firms and you realize this business model sucks. And yeah. it's the same it's, today than when I joined the profession in 84. Yeah. That was my least favorite thing about joining a big firm. I went in as a manager after I sold my practice and I had to account for, fortunately it was just 0.25 hours at a time, not 0.6. So that was an improvement. Right. Yes. Uh, but it was, uh, it was still a challenge. And the, the, the hardest thing for me was just not having enough time in the day to actually make a meaningful difference for the clients that really needed my help because I had to be so miserly with my time, especially on the smaller ones. And the startups were the ones who needed me the most. The most. Right? So, and, I, and I got to spend the least amount of time with them. So and, here's the thing. If you ask anybody, why did you become a CPA? Why did you become a doctor, lawyer, ask any professional, architect, actuary, you name it. Two thirds of the time or more, they'll say to help people. That's it, to help people. Well, you can't help people if you have a thousand customers. You just can't. You're kidding. We're all kidding ourselves. Relationships don't scale. There's a Dunbar number there that we can only handle about 75 people really 
And we shouldn't put any more burden on that on any one knowledge worker, especially yeah. if we want to move to guiding transformations, which is the highest point in the value curve. There's nothing yeah. higher than changing the customer because when you take a customer from where they are to where they want to be, the customer's the product. The services are a means to an end. It's not about the services. It's not about the paperwork and the, the financial statements and the bookkeeping and how many transactions did you have. None of that matters. What matters is you're taking them from where they are to where they want to be, some desired future. And we can do it over, over, and over, and we can do it from womb to tomb. We can do it from the more, moment they're born for college planning to estate planning when they're gone. That's powerful. Not many other businesses can do that. Accountants yeah. can do it. And that's something that I think is not spoken of enough when we talk about subscription and moving to this type of model. It's not just good for the firm owners and the partners. It's really good for the staff. And, and, and ultimately, yes, I think I agree with you, Ron, that the problem we have in the accounting profession is the business model. The business model is fee-for-service, hourly, and it's not fun. It's not exciting as a young accountant to be stuck in that business model, just making widgets, making hours, right? It's, we want to be part of something bigger. I mean, that's what everyone talks about with the younger generations, right? They all want to make a difference in the world. I don't know if that's true or if that's just, you know, the BS that we spread about younger generations, right? Like, but I feel that way. I want to make a difference. I think everybody wants to make a difference. I did too. I mean, I yeah. wanted to know what was beyond the audit, you know, and I, it never got that far. It was always just, no, just move on to the next job, you know, yeah. don't have any in, impact with the client, don't have any conversations with them about what we can do beyond the audit or the tax return. It was just move on to the next job, move on to the next job. You were jumping from one job to another. This episode of the Earmark Podcast is brought to you by Anchor. Anchor takes care of your client subscription billing and payment collection process from start to finish automatically. Anchor allows you to create a proposal that specifies your scope of work and includes terms of service. Your client can review and accept the agreement and provide payment information for automated monthly invoices and payments. The client can access all of the features on one screen, making the experience simple and streamlined. In addition, the agreement can be modified easily if there are changes to the scope of work, whether it's for monthly services or a one-time charge, to ensure both parties are on the same page. The best part is that Anchor charges only $5 for every payment received, regardless of the amount charged to the client. No matter how much you charge the client, it is still only $5 per payment. If you're a fan of Ron Baker's subscription business model, you'll love Anchor. Anchor has partnered with Ron to make sure that Anchor provides all the necessary features, capabilities, and automation for firms to implement the subscription billing model. If you want to implement the subscription business model using Anchor at your firm and schedule a demo, head over to earmarkcpe.promo forward slash anchor. That is earmarkcpe.promo forward slash A-N-C-H-O-R. The thing is, if you look at doctors, they have a burnout rate at 51%. And this was pre-COVID. And you ask yourself, why would doctors burn out at 51? You know, 51% is a lot. That's a big number now. I don't know what it is in the accounting profession, but I know it's up there. And Blake, if you took light bulbs and screwed them into your house and half of them burnt out, blew out, would you blame the light bulb? Or would you blame the electrical system? And I the blame the grid. Yeah. The, the electrical system is the business model. Mm -hmm. And we're putting these young, really smart kids through this who went through, you know, practically a master's degree to become a CPA. And it's just, it's not what they entered this profession to do. So finally, now we have a business model that aligns our rhetoric. Oh, we care about the customer, the relationships, everything. We want to be your trusted advisor. But we monetize every transaction. So there's this disconnect yeah. in the business model between what we say and what we monetize. Subscription cleans that up and aligns it. And now these really smart people can do what they entered the profession to do, which is to help people. We just yeah. need to help people. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, we call it transformation or what, but it's, it's just really helping people. 
achieve their dreams, to help them search for potential. I get so tired of hearing about how we solve problems. Yes, we're great problem solvers. We're going to continue to do that. I have no problem with it. That's fantastic. But if all we're doing for our customers is solving their problems, we're just reverting them back to the status quo. We're not advancing them and we can advance them and we can do it over and over and over. And until we do that and message it that way and communicate it that way, I don't think we're living up to our full potential. Yeah. So going back to the firm that wants to change to this model, let's make it, let's try and make it a little more real. Again, one of the objections commonly is, well, if I don't have the hourly, if I don't have the fee for service model, then how do I, how do I do this? And you talk in your book about creating portfolios of customers, segmenting them into different portfolios. I think that's the term. And then pricing, you know, by type of customer. And that seems like something that would be actually fairly easy to do with the data that most firms have, because, you know, let's say you're doing a bunch of CAS work or, you know, accounting bookkeeping work, or you're doing a bunch of tax work, you can probably bucket your customers into a few different tiers or, you know, easy, medium, difficult, or give them scores or something like that, right? There's a lot of different ways to do that. And your team probably knows how to do that. Uh, and then it's a matter of assigning them a price and kind of aligning that with the revenue you're bringing in today, right? Look at what you did last year in terms of revenue that you did on a fee-for-service basis and figure out how to create a subscription that roughly approximates that. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I want to propose this model because I think it, it's a model that gives us more pricing power. I mean, if we go to the market with a common offering, and let's face it, most CPA firms' offerings are common. Oh, we do cash. We do some advisory. We do tax. It's common offering. You're going to command a com common price. If we go to the market with an uncommon offering, what Walt Disney would call a plus offering, and we continue to plus it, by the way, like the concierge docs and the DPC docs do, then we can command uncommon pricing. So yeah. I don't think it's unrealistic to take your prices and double them or triple them or quadruple them with a plus right. offering because you're giving peace of mind. You're giving convenience. You're giving that just like your parents have with their doctor. You're, you know, saying most doctors I've read about do same day appointments. I mean, they always have capacity for their, for their customers because they don't have as many customers. But I think what really, once you get beyond, once you figure out what your purpose is, you know, and I'll just take that as a given, then you start to move into strategy and positioning. And the big thing about strategy is it's about what you don't do. A firm, mm, a, firm yeah. a CPA firm is defined by the customers it doesn't have and the services it doesn't provide. And too many firms try and be all things to all people. They want to be Morton's. They want to be McDonald's. Oh, and by the way, we have a vegan menu as well. And, you know, if, if you try and be all things to all people, you're nothing to nobody. So the more you're niched, then all of a sudden, if you're niched really narrowly, like I have a buddy who does nothing but dentists and only a particular type of dentist and only of a certain size charges them all the same Yeah, because everything's and, and, on the rails. And that's where the, the falling of geographical barriers really has made a difference. And I feel like a lot of firms still haven't made that transition. It seems natural to those of us who have growing up in our careers in a world where we can serve clients all over the country, all over the world. But there's a lot of firms that are still just regional Absolutely. and they're only sourcing clients locally. And to me, it makes sense that you would need to do everything for everyone because you've got a limited client base. And so you don't get the choice of, I'm only going to work with dentists necessarily if you're in a small town. you got to serve all the business owners. And now though, I can be in Youngstown, Ohio, and I can serve clients in all 50 states assuming that I can get around all the regulatory hurdles of, you know, being a CPA firm and maybe I won't be one. Right. But I can right, do right. that. It's, it's all doable. You can do it. You can serve and, them and anywhere. Blake, by the way, it was doable before the internet. My buddy who built his dental practice did it. He, he founded it long before the internet came along. And to this day, he, he barely has a website and he doesn't use social based. media at yeah. all. It's all referral based because he goes and talks yeah. to dental schools. He writes in the things that they read. He goes to the conferences that they go to and speaks. And everybody knows this guy from the from the people who sell equipment to the dental practices to the insurance people, and all. Everybody knows him, so he's very very picky about who he brings on. And he's well, a sole prop, by the way. 
it, it, the large firms, it's not like they don't do that or the regional ones. They because they have their experts. They'll have they a partner do. who who just does this thing. You know, maybe they only do business valuations, and that partner is you know the person in the firm who does that, and then they'll basically get somebody who does everything. Right, that's the goal of the firm: is you eventually acquire all the expertise, so you can do everything that any client could possibly need. But what is not working there is that you never really know as a client what you're going to pay for anything until you have the service done. Right. So. Right. It, it, I think like, the other thing yeah. that doesn't work there is the the false belief in economies of scale. The bigger we are, the cheaper the cost that we can do things, and there is no economies of scale in this business. It's a human capital business. We're crying out loud. Yeah. Um, so, and and also the lack of collaboration because those big firms are nothing really but silos. Yeah. Well, it was just a bunch of. It's a bunch of small firms that all use the same logo. Exactly. You know? And um, yeah. and there's no collaboration. So the subscription blows up the silo because now the customer is at the center of the business. And if if a big firm did do subscription, I, I don't think. We might never see it, by the way. But if they did, then whatever that customer needed, the the firm would just, you know, circle circle the firm or circle the customer and do whatever they needed from whatever well, well, area of expertise they needed it from. Well, here's a crazy idea. This comes from Hector Garcia. I was doing a stream with him for a series we're doing called Build a Focus Firm. And he told me something I never heard before. He calculated that if you if you take the um, gross domestic product of the United States and then you divide it by the number of accountants in the country, you get something like $19 million in revenue per accountant in this country. That's how much revenue there is for each one accountant on average. So the idea is uh, also that you can then calculate a, a percentage of all the accounting fees like as a percentage of gross domestic product. And if you do that, it comes out to about half a percent. So our country, on average, right, we pay about half a percent to get all the accounting done. That's that's the, like the credit card fee, right? We all pay two to 3% as businesses for the privilege of collecting credit cards. Well, effectively, businesses in the US, from small to large, on average, pay about half a percent. And I was thinking, you know, if you're a large firm, you could do a subscription model where you just charge a percentage of revenue. Like the investment advisors do this, right? They don't, they don't charge for every service that they provide. They, they price you based on how many assets you have that they manage. It's not how much time they put in. And they do great. They're the ones who are really enjoying life. Like why, don't, why doesn't anyone do that for accounting? Well, at the big firm level... There's two problems. Um, the problem with that and the problem even with subscription is it would impair independence. And if you offer a test work, that would impair your independence. So you can't do that. If you charged a percentage of revenue and that included Correct. the audit. Correct. You couldn't do yeah. it now. You, so you'd have but, to do what Amper Eisner did, you know, spin out uh, yeah. the, the test function and just do that under a separate cover. And then maybe do everything else based on these different models. Yeah, but you could do the tax work, you could do the accounting services work, the bookkeeping work, the advisory work. You could do it all for just a percentage of revenue. You could say, you know, up to this revenue threshold, it's uh, 2% of your revenue, right? For the smaller firms, you got to charge, for the smaller companies with less revenue, you'll charge a little more, right? And then as they get bigger, you give them more of a discount or whatever it is, right? Right. I mean, the reason I'm bringing this up is because this is actually how I used to gut check my own pricing. I did, I, I, I wasn't fourth, you know, I wasn't advanced enough to do this when I had my firm. I would, I would still price things out based on the services we were doing. But in sure. the end, when I looked at the final number, I would take the annual fee I was going to charge my client. I divide it by their revenue to figure out what my fee was going to be as a percentage of their revenue because I knew that's what they were looking at. That's how they were thinking about it. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I did it too. I mean, I had this, it's a heuristic, right? You, yeah. What's what percent of revenue and all of that is a gut check. Absolutely. It's not the, it's not the driving factor of the pricing, but it's a gut check. Yeah. Well, and what I like about it is that it, it grows with the business and it can be automated. So 
you don't have to deal with the emotions of pricing customers and the complexity of it. It's very simple. And, right. and that is something that, you know, I think it's a barrier most of the time. So if, you know, maybe, maybe that's a way to do it. If you're listening and you're trying to think, how do I do all you can eat bookkeeping services? Maybe you just charge between half a percent and 2% of revenue on every client. Well, well, with the caveat that, you know, a lot of bookkeepers deal with startups and that don't have any revenue and you're still adding, yeah. in fact, sometimes you're adding even more value to, you, to those you types have a floor. of entities. You could yeah. have a floor yeah. on that, right? Yeah. All, all, all firms and should have ceiling. minimum prices. Yeah. All firms should have minimum prices. But the, the objection I get to the, and people say all you can eat and it's, it's not an all-you-can-eat business model. People equate it to Netflix, and it's all-you-can-eat of the type of food that you serve. <laughs> it, you know, you, if, if you're Morton's, you're not going to give somebody McDonald's or a vegan plate, right? You, they came into Morton's, right, right? can only stand for one thing. So it's the strategy and the positioning is critical. But if you're well, really focused down, then it, this becomes much easier to give everybody even the same price. Another way to deal with capacity... I don't know if I told you this example, Ron. There's a company called Design Pickle that's uh, based here in Scottsdale, mm -hmm. I believe, where I live. And they offer unlimited graphic design services for a yep. fixed monthly fee to small businesses. And you wonder, how can they do that? And it starts low. I mean, when I used them, uh, it was like starting at $500 a month. Unlimited design services. But here's how they deal with capacity. The scope is unlimited, but you can only submit one work order at a time. Time. So sure. the designer, and there's always designers available. They have a pool of designers. Now you're assigned one. If they're not available, it'll go to somebody else. But you get your designer. So you, you put in your work order in this online system and you say what you want and you add any assets. And then they work on it overnight in the Philippines because that's where they're based. And they come back to you. And so they naturally can plan capacity because they know if I've got X customers, there's only so many work orders that can come in every day. And I just need to have enough people on the staff to make progress on those every day. Yep. And I just thought that's such a brilliant way of managing capacity and expectations. And if you wanted somebody who's going to respond in real time to you, there's another package for that. And that's way more expensive, right? Because they got to have capacity to have people who can chat with you at any time. It's a lower client to designer ratio. Right, right. I yeah, I you know, I think there's different ways to modify and design this model. I mean, I'm not claiming to have all the answers. I just want to ask the right questions. Yeah. And try and point out where our rhetoric doesn't match with our business model. For example, how long have we been talking about? I've heard Joe Woodard talk about this. I, maybe you've talked about it. I've talked about it. This idea of well, what if we gave away the bookkeeping and the tax work to get the advisory? Everybody wants to move to advisory. Well, yeah. I just read this fascinating book, Blake, called The Crux, How Leaders Become Strategists. And this guy, Richard Rommelt, wrote it. And he, he's written Good Strategy, Bad Strategy. So he's a strategy consultant. And I really like this, but his definition of a business model blew my mind. He said, in essence, a business model explains where revenue will be earned when services are provided free of charge. A business now, model explains where revenue will be earned when, when services, services are... When services are provided free of charge. Okay, you're going to have to walk me through this. That's mind-bending. If you didn't charge for services in a CPA firm, nothing. You didn't charge for advisory. You didn't charge for cash. You didn't charge for tax. You didn't charge for anything. Yeah. What would you want to charge for? What would be the revenue model? This is the revenue model question. What do we want our customers to pay us for? Right now, we're answer some firms are answering hourly. Some firms are answering for a defined scope of work, plus change orders, you know, from the Department of Paperwork if we go outside of that scope. Transformations are the answer, I think, mm -hmm. for a subscription firm. I would charge for the transformation. Well, I'll push back a little bit on that because I feel like that's, transformation like feels like so overwhelming if you're a firm owner has been just doing services like what am I, you know how am i going to go from like doing one-off tax returns you know to changing somebody's life? life like that's that sounds a little much for me right we do it every day we do it 
every day. We help our customers' businesses grow. We help our customers' businesses become more valuable. We help our customers get their kids into college. We help their customers help our customers buy vacation homes and other things that they want. We mm-hmm. help our customers grow. We help our customers plan their legacy for when they die. You do a state that none of these things are about the services. They're about right. transforming the customer. We do it every day. We're just like fish in water. Why? Because we don't think of it that way because we're inhibited by our, we're limited by our language. We don't even have the proper language to use to describe subscription. It's one of the things I struggled with in the book, trying, trying to explain these concepts with my old accounting mindset, even my old gap mindset got in the way. You know, we always want to allocate revenue to certain things, right? Well, in subscription, what the hell do you allocate revenue to? What does Netflix allocate revenue to? Do they get a list of everything you watched and split it up? No, it just goes into revenue because they're in subscription. You're creating lifetime annuities that are more valuable than the cost to acquire them. So everything's about customer lifetime value. So you don't have to worry about the math of the moment. You know, we bang Wall Street all the time for being too short term, too quarterly driven earnings per share per quarter, blah, blah, blah. They're too short term. They don't make long term investments. CPA firms are not only short term, they're hour termed. They're trying to do this by every hour. It's crazy when you think about it. So yeah, the the allocating of the costs down to... Every single down hour. to every yeah. hour. So, yeah. so when you say, and, and look, I, this is a great pushback. It's a great question. I got it. I've gotten it multiple times. Is it possible for a landscaper to provide a transformation? Oh, I wish mine would, because all he does is come and blow leaves around, <laughs> you know, and cut a few branches. But it's funny. We had some plants die in the yard and they just stay there dead. Yeah. And, I'm going to have to go ask. Actually, we did ask. We asked, hey, can you like do something about this? And the answer is no. Like, they don't do it. They, they, Which is amazing because it's their profession. I, I would happily pay whatever it costs. Like, charge me for the plant. Mark it up. You know, charge me an installation fee. Just keep my plants alive and then replace them if they die. Because it's Arizona and, and half the plants you plant die. It's just mm-hmm. natural selection here, you know? Sure. But yeah, most most of the landscapers here don't do that. So, it's so, kind of amazing. So let's imagine a landscaping business. Yeah. That 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 I think works at a far lower potential than a CPA firm in terms of impacting people's life. I mean, because if you look at people, they want they want to be healthier, wealthier, and wiser. Now we can keep them, um, you know, wealthier, and I think we can impact their wiser too, and probably impact their health even by keeping them, you know, financially healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, but a landscaper, what if a landscaper came out to you and said, we'll give you basic maintenance. We'll just, you know, we'll do basic maintenance, keep the yard up, blah, blah, blah. Or I'll bring you up to neighborhood standards. If your house maybe is a little bit older, or not as well maintained or whatever, or I'll give you the best curbside appeal in the neighborhood and we'll slowly transform your yard over time. Because maybe you plan to sell in a couple years. Yeah. I would pay twice as much for that. That's a right transformation. Yeah. That's a that's what I mean by getting pricing power. See, yeah. that's not a common landscaper. None of them do that, by the way. If I found one, I would hire them in a minute because I hate my landscapers. But because mm-hmm. you're right, I have to go out and point stuff out to them. <laughs> yeah. Holy crap. But, this is their job. And this is this is the solution then, like bring this back to the firms, right? If you're a firm doing a bunch of tax returns, you can instead of just doing the return for the client, right, get into the, everyone's moving into this tax planning stuff, right? Actually, like, say I'm going to have fewer clients, I'm going to spend more time with them, and we're going to talk in advance. We're going to talk at the beginning of the year about what they can do that year to reduce their tax liability. And, right, and uh, I, yeah. I know uh, there is a there is a big movement to that, tax planning or whatever you want I mean, to call I, it, I, tax I, scenario. I, and if you did it as a subscription, it seems like a no-brainer to me, and it's a, it's a smooth transition. It's a way to take a tra- traditional firm cut the number of clients, increase the fees, do more for the clients, right? With something you're already doing. But see, I've got this built-in DNA that says when everybody's zigging, I'm going to zag. Mm-hmm. I don't want to copy everybody else. I want to go to the market with 
what like Disney did with Disneyland and all the experts that ran all the other parks in the country told them it will never work. It'll oh. never work for these m- millions of reasons. I love that story. Yeah, yeah I do when... too. It, and, and he ends up not listening to them and hiring yeah. two of them as a consultant for Disneyland. Well, my um, favorite story about that is, is, you know, Disney wanted to have just one parking lot at the south side of the park. And one, one entrance. entrance. And he brought in all the theme park experts at the time, and most theme parks were more like glorified carnivals. Yep. And they said, oh, no, no, you got to have parking all around. All around. you got to have gates on all sides so that people can get easy access, which, of course, would be a horrible experience because everybody's entering from a different point and you don't have this consistent experience of going down Main Street. It's just like it's impossible. Yeah, and he ignored them. So I have a colleague, Paul Kennedy, in London, and he has he does business advisory. He says, I like to start where other firms leave off. Mm-hmm. So if you don't want him to do your tax work and your bookkeeping, fine. He's willing just to work with you on, on an advisory level. But the only way he'll work with you uh, is if you do advisory. So the only way to get him to do the tax and compliance work is to be an advisory client. Yeah. One of the first things he tells new customers, Blake, is this. If you work with me, you are going to pay more taxes. If you, I'm, I'm, if you work with us, yeah. you are going to pay more taxes. We will do everything in our power to minimize your tax. But in the long run, my goal is to increase your wealth and your income. Would you and rather have an accountant? Tax. <laughs> would you rather have an accountant that was focused on maximizing your wealth and income or an accountant yeah. that was focused on minimizing your taxes? I will take oh, yeah. the former any day yeah. of the week. Oh yeah, for the marketer in me is is jumping at the bit to play with that instead of just, you know, tax planning. Everybody's right? zigging. Yeah. Well, this Zag. is this is where the wealth managers are really beating us because they focus on that. They talk about that. They may not all do it. A lot of it may be a scam in in many cases, right? Uh we we see that with uh investment advisors and all that stuff, but Right. They talk it. And so I actually feel like it's a huge opportunity for accountants to like get into that side of helping clients grow their wealth. Yep. I agree. I think it's uh, what we need to focus on. Just, yeah. you know, uh, Paul Dunn quotes a great line in the book that nature doesn't look for problems. It looks for potential. And I think we're, we've become too focused on solving problems rather than seeking opportunity and pursuing opportunity. And so I guess I would ask, if you want to pivot to subscription, and I think you can do it whether you're hourly billing or value pricing. I think you can, if you're hourly billing, you can jump right over value pricing and go right to subscription. You're still going to have to learn some tenets of value pricing because some still apply, but I, I see no need to move to value pricing and then subscription. I think you can leapfrog right over. Yeah. Well, it's it's really, to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, subscription pricing is value pricing, but a portfolio of clients right. it, or it's customers. Look, it's looking at the whole, it's a systems thinking. Yeah. It, it looks at everything. It looks at the pr- portfolio, just like your investment portfolio. You know, yeah. you've got some very safe investments, some mid-risk investments, some high-risk investments, but as long as the portfolio overall is functioning, uh, it's the same. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, we know some customers are going to get audited. We know some customers are going to get more IRS or state notices than others. We'll just deal with them because yeah. it, that's not that's not how we're. It's got a different profit formula. We're not analyzing the profit of every transaction of every hour. We're analyzing here's the price where you're covered, and because we're covering you for no matter what whatever it is you need, that's a form of insurance, yeah. and that also commands a premium price. So all of that's built into the plus offering, and I think that commands us a premium price. And I'm talking two or three times more than your nearest competitor. Yeah, and it's important, it's very important to emphasize that you're not gonna get, you're not gonna get screwed over on doing these audit defenses or or doing these services because you know how many clients you have, you know how much revenue they generate on a recurring basis, and so you know how many staff you can afford. And all you gotta do is make sure that you've got enough staff roughly to handle all that inbound IRS correspondence or audits. And if you know that, it doesn't matter if one client is quote unquote profitable on a cost allocation basis or not, because those are all imaginary 
allocations it, it, of yeah, when, fixed when you, costs. When you think about it, customers and services don't have costs. Firms have costs. Yeah. <laughs> so why are we yeah. sitting here trying to allocate the rent and the toilet paper and the ink to every single customer based on some arbitrary hourly rate? It's crazy. Um, yeah. You, you, that's what I mean by the portfolio. Well, it, you just got to look at the portfolio and the cash flow. Yeah. Well, that's the great evil of cost accounting. It, it's applying, and this goes to the experience in firms, is if you run your firm under the same cost theory that industrial factories used, in the 1800s, and you're going to create a factory type of firm. And who wants to be a factory worker these days? It, not it's the not holy, those masters of accounting grads. It's the whole economies of scale. That's what the right. big firms believe, right? They're, they're no different than Henry Ford. Well, the more cars we produce, the cheaper per unit, right? Well, think about that for a minute. You, you mean to tell me if you buy a million, if you produce a million cars, as opposed to say, I don't know, half a million, that each car will be cheaper. But what happens to your cash? You're buying, you know, five hundred thousand times four more tires, five hundred thousand more engines. You, there's no way. It's it, it's only because of the math of how we do margin. This is why Jeff Bezos said, "I don't look at gap. Gap's useless. My metric is free cash flow per share. Yeah. He said, margin doesn't pay my light bill." It's a famous line from him from one of his Amazon letters to shareholders. Well, I'm and, not focused on margin. I'm focused on free cash flow. And if Jeff Bezos thought like a traditional accounting firm, he never would have done Amazon Prime two-day shipping. Because when you allocate the costs on shipping, most items on Amazon lose money when they are shipped two days. That's right. Uh, at least at the beginning they did, because Amazon had not yet built out this network. Network. So they were paying UPS and FedEx $15 to deliver a $5 to $10 item. And that seemed crazy to people at the time. Uh, but what Bezos realized is that as he built out this network of his own delivery fleets, that he only had fixed costs. He didn't actually have allocated costs per item. So they could do this two-day thing, and and it they still lose money. Any item, I think, under $10, Amazon doesn't make money on when you buy it with the, t the Prime shipping. But like you've said, Ron, people who subscribe to Prime spend thousands and thousands of dollars more every year yep. on other products, on it's all a, their purchases. It's about yeah. building a moat around their customers. And yeah, yeah and, it, it was in, a brilliant move. And in my neighborhood, I, I live in a neighborhood, You know, it's like a little master plan community with about, I think, 10,000 people. I live in it. We're our own little, you know, city in a way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I just see those Amazon. They're all cute, over. Cute little Amazon vans driving around the neighborhood, going back and forth from that warehouse somewhere in out in outer Phoenix all day long. They must have them coming every hour. You get same and day stuff there because you're so close to a fulfillment center. I can order same day multiple times per day. That's wow. that's the experience of wow. it. It's incredible. That's amazing. You know, yeah. See, Amazon is so focused on the customer. It's amazing. Just it, making that experience better and better and better and better. And they keep plussing yeah. it. They keep plussing it. That way, when they raise their price, they don't have to blame it on inflation, rising labor costs, supply chain problems. They talk about all the value that they've added to Prime in the yeah. last two years or whatever it's been. And there's always something to talk about there. And what do we have to talk about when we're going to go to our customers now and raise the price because of inflation? What have we done to plus our offering in the last two yeah. years? Um, the other thing that needs to be said, and you can talk to John Warlow about this, the author of The Automatic Customer, and the guy who wrote Built to Sell, which is a phenomenal book. You probably read that when you were practicing, I would imagine, how, how to position your firm to sell it. And he says, mm -hmm. you know, normally an accounting firm sells for one times gross revenue. Now, sometimes it's 1.2, 1.1, sometimes it's 0.8, you know, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, on average, one-time revenue. He said with subscription, because it's annual recurring revenue as opposed to annual reoccurring revenue, and there's a difference there, because it's more predictable, because you're starting on the 50-yard line every day, um, and you're not starting in the end zone where you have to, you know, constantly fill the funnel with marketing and sales and all of that because you're transaction-based, not, not relationship-based. 
he said, we're seeing anywhere between five and 14 times multiples. SAS that, that needs to yeah. be factored into the profit formula of your firm, because when you go to exit, your firm's going to be a heck of a lot more valuable if you're subscription-based, as opposed to even, yep. value pricing, I've seen two and three multiples three times, but I've never seen five to 14, like he's talking about. No. Well, I think in order to get that, though, you're going to have to have a cost of labor that's extremely low. And that's why technology companies with recurring revenue sell for such high multiples, because you just print money. Uh, the, the costs are so low to, to run a, a software company. Like if you just stopped developing the product and you didn't hire any engineers and you just kept the people there. I mean, look at what Elon Musk did at Twitter, right? He came in and he let go at like 80% of the company and the service still runs and it's going to become profitable as a result. And that's why these tech companies are worth so much. Um, yeah. I, I mean, they're they definitely, I mean, they're digital. But, so, but they're, but, Take, take a company like Netflix. Yeah. Okay. Netflix doesn't cost any any money for them to add a new subscriber to the role, but think about what they have to invest in in terms of content. Yeah. It's massive. They have to hire the most expensive well, people on the planet. It's true. You know what's what's interesting though is it's sort of a it's it's like a they spend so much because all they have to do is have a few hits every year and people will stay, right? But they don't know what's going to be a hit. Well, that's a joke you know? in the book about the, you know, the accounting firm buying the Hollywood studio after a banner year and an executive stands up and says, oh, we're going to make 10 movies this year. Two of them are going to be blockbusters. Five of them are, we're going to lose money and the others will probably either break even or make very, very little profit. One of the accountants raises his hands, goes, well, why don't we just do the two blockbusters? Yeah, that's, that's, I love that. I'm glad you brought that up. That was one of my favorite parts. One of my favorite stories in the book. And that's things you don't really know. Profit yeah. comes from risk. Yeah. And if we're not willing to take risk, if we're not, you know, I love Blue Origin's motto, ferocious, step by step, ferociously. I mean, we're just not ferocious enough as a profession. We've got these, we've got these really mediocre goals of increasing utilization by 10% or growing top line by 20% or whatever. That's not inspiring anybody, you know? Give people the reason they entered the profession. Let them help people. Turn yeah. them loose. And I think, you know, the future's I, bright. I wish that was the guiding principle at every firm. They talk about it. They talk about investing in their team and their people. But then when you actually look at how the business is run, if you look at the business model, it doesn't do any of that. Yeah. And until they and, change the business model, it won't. This is yeah. why I love, you know, the big four, the, the big four does so many cool things. They really do because they got a boatload of money to invest in different initiatives, but they, they will not question their business model. It just yeah. blows my mind. Well, I mean, the, the, the reason is it, it makes a lot of money for the partners. For the, well, but I don't you think know. it's sustainable, uh, but we'll but, see. Well, and that's, that's where things could really change, right? Because the, partners rely on new partners coming in to buy them out and and keep it going and if the pyramid shape of the firm doesn't continue like the 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 margin on that labor can't flow upward right. and then the new partners will see the profits shrink right and then they might say well what's the point of this it's it's this whole this whole demographic change that we're going through as a country where we have fewer and fewer younger workers every year is a real threat to the business model of those big four no, firms. If you're selling hours, it's terrible because an hour yeah. is not leverageable. You know, and there's fewer not... hours to sell, right? Yeah. There's fewer yeah. hours to sell every year. Absolutely. So. And, you know, and I, <laughs> so in some ways the big four partners have the same problem Bernie Madoff did. Yeah. I, I wonder actually the only, so the corn Ferry did a study on this years ago before it was trendy and um, projected out the labor shortage. They call it the talent mm -hmm. crunch. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the only large country in the world that is going to have a surplus of white collar workers is India. And so I wonder if we'll end up seeing the big four essentially become Indian companies because they're the only, that's the only country with enough labor to keep the model going for now.
It's really, yeah, if you look at declining birth rates, we're going to start losing population yeah. in, you know, 2060, whatever it is, according to the UN demographers. India is going to surpass China in terms of population next year. Yeah. China is going to lose 1.1% of its population per year for the next 50 years. They're going to shrink dramatically. Yeah. So they've, you know, they, they grew old before they grew really rich. I mean, they got richer, but, and they took 800 million yeah. people out of poverty, but they're going to have real issues. So it's going to be really yeah. interesting. Yeah, if and you were betting, man, you'd bet on India, India's long-term future before yeah. you'd bet on China's probably. Yeah. And that's, that's where I'd be if I was an accounting firm that was leveraging labor in this way, big four. I mean, they're already doing it. They've been doing it for a long time, right, with their offices there. But I feel like um, more and more of the work, it's not just going to be the low-end processing that's happening there. They're going to actually shift most of the auditing, most of the compliance work is going to be done in India. India. For you know, I was US talking companies. to Barry Melanson at Digital, and he was talking about them. He's very, very bullish on the Middle East. Uh, and he sees a big future for the Middle East, partly because their birth rate is exceptionally high, mm -hmm. you know, three, four births per woman, which is major compared to most other countries. I mean, Korea is at like 0.8%. We're at like 1.6%. It yeah. takes 2.1% to just replace the population, right? Yep. Um, so he's very we bullish on the Middle East, which I thought was very interesting. We have more dogs than children in the United States now. Yeah, I believe it. And we probably spend yeah. more on them too. <laughs> well, I mean, there's dog subscriptions, yeah. bark box, and you know. Hey, I, I'm fortunate <clears throat> to live in a place with a, a decent public school. I do spend more on my dog, taking him to doggy daycare, than I do on my son, funny enough. That's well, right. You're going to get backpack it. funding, right? With this new law. Yeah. Oh, uh, what's that? Uh, the uh, funding for uh, school, K 12 school. Yeah, right? yeah. They're, they're backpack funding it, right? They're giving the money to the kid, not the not the building, not that's, the school. You can go yeah, any, that, you you can take your kid yeah. anywhere, right? That's a very interesting um, and controversial development. Yeah, it's be, because the question is, if this money goes with the kid and the and the kid can take it, the parents can take it, the family can take it to any school. If it goes to a religious school, is that school going to get audited by? the state to make sure those funds are being used appropriately because this is taxpayer money, right? So that's where I wonder how this is all going to shake out. Oh, we'll see. I, you know, people can take their social security money and put it in the church collection plate. That's and true. Not all, and not all of that is, is what you earn through social, there's a huge welfare component in social security. So I, I think that's it, been litigated actually, what you just, I it? think Maine had just, uh, you can do it, had a case. Yeah, they can do it. Yeah. It's, what, what, What's interesting to me is, you know, coming from California, moving to Arizona during the pandemic times is actually just how much better government services work here. Oh, Arizona Even we spend, incredible. We spend less money, but the DMV is like partially privatized. And so I can make an appointment and get everything taken care of in 30 minutes, right? I mean, same thing with like just basically everything. I mean, the, the, the trash service, the water the gas company came and proactively dug up my gas line so I wouldn't have a leak. Wow. It was a massive project, right? Wow. Like, like they, Impressive. You know, that wouldn't happen in California. They wait until something explodes. or Explodes, yeah. Or whatever, right? yeah. yeah. It, you, ever, you, um, you probably drove from uh, California to Nevada. As soon as you cross the line, the roads are like 100% better. It's just yeah. amazing. Well, you know what's really interesting about, I mean, Phoenix, if, if we can overcome our water issue, mm. really, it's going to be an economic powerhouse because all of the manufacturing, well, not all of it, but a lot of manufacturing in China is moving to Mexico as a result of, you know, like you said, there's demographic changes, but also just the change in the government. And like states like Monterey in Mexico, or cities, I think Monterey is a city, are becoming these manufacturing hubs. Chinese companies are coming there and they're building a, a huge interstate that's going to go from Mexico up through Phoenix up all the way to Vegas. And it's going to be a real economic potential economic powerhouse yeah. this area if we can if we can solve the water you got the taiwan taiwanese uh, semiconductor company building I, I, and they've got plans by the way to build a second one in phoenix i i drove by that factory just by accident and it is massive massive it's been massive. 40 billion on it yeah and they I got mean, plans it's... to build another one that's going to do another type of chip and their number one customer in phoenix will be apple oh. They're I'm the so ones excited. That make Apple's new chips. 
it's great for the economy, and we're we're going to have some good Chinese food in Phoenix. Fine, yeah. I miss that. You know, and you'll get some Taiwan, Taiwanese people outside of get them out of Taiwan mm-hmm. before it's taken over. So that that's a good thing. But you know, it's it's um. I guess I just want to finish up on like let's 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 think positive, Ron. Let's let's uh, let's think about you know the future of accounting. Like I believe, and I have to keep saying this every time because I think I don't say it enough that like there's incredible opportunity in accounting. Huge. And even though we've got this talent shortage, yeah, we got this talent shortage. We you know there aren't enough CPAs and not enough young people going in. But like if if, if you want to go out and start your own firm and you want to serve clients the right way, you're not happy where you're at. I mean, it's pretty much you can do anything. Never so been I guess, easier. Well, here's here's a question. You know, like Ron, um, let's say you know you take a you find the fountain of youth, and you know you you take a swig and you're 20 again or something, right? You're just like starting your career. Where, what would you do? I you know I've been asked this before, and of course I would never bill by the hour. I would never fill out a timesheet. I would niche. I would niche. I mean. Uh, from what I've seen in my 40 years in this profession, the most profitable firms across all professions have one thing in common. They're all niched. They're all niched. Um, and it's, I mean, my buddy who I was telling you about that does nothing but dentists, if I told you his net income and he's a sole proprietor with 12 team members, you'd be shocked. He's making more than the, you know, the, the magic circle firms in the UK, the law firms pull down six, seven million dollars per partner per yeah. year. I, I couldn't agree more with you. I, not that money's everything. I'm just saying. Oh no, if, I mean know, if you're looking at profit, you can't ignore that. You need to have fun. Absolutely. You need to balance your life and your work. And you know, money isn't going to make you happy, but it sure makes it a lot easier to be happy. Right. Sure. It gives you <laughs> right. freedom. It gives you gives freedom, freedom to do yeah. what you want. Yeah. So, so I, I would niche and and I and I, now I would do subscription. So listeners if you have enjoyed this conversation with Ron Baker, be sure to pick up a copy of his book, Time's Up, The Subscription Model for Professional Firms, written by Ron Baker. And I should mention your co-author, Paul Dunn. Paul Dunn, who's, a, uh, who's got the greatest sub- first seven mm. chapters. They're just wonderful. And by the way, the foreword written by Blake Oliver. Th- yes, uh, I did forget to mention that. Thank you so much, Ron. You, you, you uh, did, written, you did was, a great job on the foreword. It was an honor. Um Well, that's all the time we have. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and hope to see you again soon on the Earmark Podcast. Thanks, Blake. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that you learned something new. And if you did, wouldn't it be nice to get some CPE credit for it? Well, I've got great news. My new app, Earmark CPE, offers free NASPA-approved CPE credits for listening to podcasts, including this one. Visit earmarkcpe.com to download the app, take a short quiz, and get your CPE certificate. That's earmarkcpe.com.